0: You're listening to the Doxology and Theology podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20. And uh, we will read in just a moment the first 12 verses, though I would like to uh, uh, confine my attention to, to verse 7. And I want to look particularly at the Lord's Supper uh, in this session. My assignment, as Matt said, is uh, seeing the gospel. Um, I approach this subject with, with a bit of trepidation. Uh, I thought Matt Boswell was my friend. Um, he, he invited me to this stellar conference uh, on the campus of Southern Baptist Seminary where they care a bit about theology. Uh, with a lot of theologians, and, and he's given me the most controversial subject, perhaps, in the history of the church uh, in in the Lord's Supper. So, Lick uh, Duncan was here. We could have had him talk about this. Uh, uh, Tabiti to, to will be here. Uh, he, he's asked the JV to uh, talk about the Lord's Supper. So uh, we'll give it a go. It is a great honor to be uh, with you guys, to be in my home state, actually, uh, the great state of Kentucky, uh, and to have my, my bride with me today. I, I I don't intend to address every uh, uh, matter on this subject, and I'm certainly in, in no mood to be a controversialist, uh, but, I, but I do want to encourage you with some basic truths from this passage of Scripture, which is about a little worship gathering uh, of the church in Troas, which, which I find to be one of the most neglected sections of Scripture uh, when it comes to thinking about corporate worship. Uh, and so, I, I just want to encourage you to give some careful consideration, to this subject as you think about worship in our contemporary day. Uh, An often neglected aspect, I believe, of worship planning uh, and preparation. And so, would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 12? Uh, We'll give our attention to verses 7 to 12, but I'd like to get a running start. Paul has just ministered in Acts 19. Uh, in Ephesus, there's been a revival, there's been a riot. Those two things often happen when Paul comes to town. And now we read in verses uh, 1 to 6 a travelogue uh, describing how Paul is moving from place to place. Uh, Luke doesn't include every detail in that travelogue, like the writing of 2 Corinthians and the writing of Romans. Uh, but what Paul… Uh, what Luke does describe for us is this spirit of encouragement uh, that permeates these verses. Paul is in, on a, sort of a, an encouragement tour. And he ends up in Troas, and that's where we'll pick it up. So let's read uh, chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was set, about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, and there we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with him intending to depart on the next day and he uh, prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper, upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over to him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are here as your children by not our merits, but by your mercy. And we are grateful today that your mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. We are grateful today that there is more mercy in Jesus Christ than sin in us. So we thank you today for the great privilege we have, first of all, of knowing you, and the double privilege of leading your church to know you more. And So we pray, Father, what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. may be seated. Well this is a famous uh, and and somewhat familiar passage of Scripture about this little lad Eutychus who falls asleep in Paul's sermon. A poor guy, you know, he gets mentioned one time in the Bible, and it's for falling asleep during a sermon. His name means lucky or unfortunate, and he was unfortunately sitting by the window as Paul droned on uh, forever. After this three-story fall, we find here that that Paul restored his life and continued preaching until daybreak. It it really is a remarkable story. And we can identify, can't we, with the slow drift during a lecture or a sermon uh, or some movie perhaps. I had a guy email me recently and said, "Uh, Pastor Tony, I just wanted to apologize. You probably saw me out there. I was asleep during your sermon. And he added, uh, I'm sure you see that all the time. Uh, (laughs) I said, but I was on some medication and I was just drifting away. And so I I was really thankful for Barnabas in sending me uh, such an encouraging note. My good friend, uh, David Platt, who uh, we went to school together, uh, once fell asleep during prayer time at our mentor's house. Uh, he had worked himself to the point of exhaustion and was literally snoring during uh, our prayer time. It was… It was radical sleep. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes even, even the best cannot stay awake. Uh, our weakness reminds us that we are not self-sufficient. Uh, we're reminded that… that God needs no sleep. Uh, he needs no air. He needs no food. He doesn't need us. He's all-sufficient and, and we are not. But this story is not mainly about how to stay awake in corporate worship. In fact, if you're looking at the text there in verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 12, there's a… it's bookended by this concept of encouragement, uh, translated in verse 12 in the ESV as as comforted. And as I said, Paul is on a bit of an encouragement tour, working his way through uh, the various cities And Luke doesn't include everything that's going on in Paul's uh, travel life at the time, but what he does want to point out is the importance of encouragement. This is, after all, a very vital ministry in our church, isn't it? We are told in Hebrews chapter 10, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's, that's a vital part of our corporate gatherings, of, of simply ministering encouragement to one another, to, to do that in person because we are embodied creatures. Paul says in uh, Romans 1, for I want very much to see you, so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now Paul was writing an inspired epistle of Romans and yet he still wanted to visit the saints in person because we are embodied creature and creatures and being present matters. Well eventually Paul arrives in person now to Troas in verse 7 and we find a little worship gathering uh, that's taking place. Uh, Luke says that they stayed in verse 6 for for seven days, probably waiting on the next boat. And while they were waiting there… They had opportunity to… to assemble together. Now F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, points out the significance of this gathering as… as Luke mentions several important uh, little details, almost in passing. Bruce notes, the reference to meeting for the breaking of bread on the first day of the week is the earliest text we have from which it may be inferred with reasonable certainty that the Christians regularly came together for worship on that day. So it's a very important text, an often neglected text as we think about uh, the corporate assembly. And what we get is a little inside look at the the priorities of the early church. Now, we we shouldn't try to transfer everything we see in the book of Acts. We know that uh, from basic Bible interpretation. Uh, We're not going to insist on oily lamps and a sermon until daybreak. We're not uh, transferring everything that we see, nor should we neglect things we don't see in Acts 20 like prayer, for example, uh, in the church coming together uh, for that purpose. But we should seek to to transfer what is transferable in this particular text. And I think there are some important principles for uh, public worship. Now, in case you were drifting away, let me just once again describe the details of what happens in this text. And I want to draw your, your attention to three exhortations, three challenges that we find in Acts 20. Luke is present on the occasion verse 7 He he says we and so he's there to report some eyewitness details of what was happening with this church in Troas Uh, These by the way were were new believers and this was a a new church. So you've got a lot of new converts a new assembly Um, They they gathered probably around sunset after the workday was complete and which is why we should be sympathetic to Eutychus, I think. He's probably a teenager, and he's worked all day, and uh, he's tired. And we all know teenagers can sleep. Uh, we adults got to get up every couple hours at night. Uh, but, but a teenager can just sleep. It's really quite remarkable. And so uh, Eutychus drifts away, and Paul pro- uh, prolonged this speech uh, up until midnight, and then later goes on until the daybreak. And I think the length of the sermon isn't so much about what Paul always did, But rather this was a special occasion. They only had Paul for a limited time And so if you have limited time with people you love you you will sacrifice won't you you'll you'll stay up to be with them Uh, And so they wanted every minute they could get with the Apostle It says in verse 7 that they gathered to break bread and I take that to mean as most commentators do the Lord's Supper Which seems to be done down in verse 11 in the context of a meal We'll take we'll take, uh, take a look at this more in a moment. Luke tells us that this meeting took place in a home on the third floor, and he even gives us the feel of the room, doesn't he? It's stuffy, it's, it's oily, it's, it's hot. Uh, lamps were in the room, and Eutychus is probably getting the, the prized seat that everyone wanted uh, by the window so that you could get some air. Luke doesn't seem to be attaching any blame to Eutychus here. Um, he's trying to stay awake. Verse 9, I love how he says that he was overcome by sleep uh, and that that Paul talked still longer. He talked. And so, you don't get a lot of blame here from uh, Eutychus. And then Paul, in Elijah and Elisha fashion, uh, was able to raise this young man back to life. They then had the meal together, which again, I think included the table Uh, and then I love how Luke's final comment is that they took the youth away alive and brought great comfort to the church. And I'm sure one man said after this sermon, killer sermon, Paul, right? (laughs) You're you're killing it. You're killing it. Well, what, what do we learn from this gathering? Three things. First of all, that we should gather weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Secondly, that we gather to hear the Lord's word, and thirdly, we gather to enjoy the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Resurrection, the Lord's Word, and the, and the Lord's Supper. First, and I'll spend most of my time on the third one, we gather weekly to celebrate the Lord's Resurrection. Luke says this happens on the first day of the week, right, verse seven, and this day had been set apart because of the resurrection of Jesus as the Lord's Day. Several references to this, Luke 24, 1, Revelation 1:10, 1, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. And the way Luke describes this, uh, these events, he gives the impression that this was simply the norm for the churches. Uh, He had been there for seven days. On the first day of the week, they gathered. Um, And so they gathered on this particular day to remember the Lord's resurrection. And that's that's an important uh, principle that we, we must not overlook. Every week we gather together, we are reminding brothers and sisters that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. The resurrection is not simply a truth to, to die on, but it is a truth to live on. It's a practical truth. We gather together and we remind our brothers and sisters that when your tank is empty, the tomb is empty. This took place in the evening. Later, church history tells us that Sunday mornings became uh, the particular norm. And and wherever you land on the time question, uh, the point here is that we are to meet weekly to celebrate the resurrection of our glorious King. Now when we meet together for our assembly, we get a, a glimpse, don't we, of the great gathering to come as we see in passages like Revelation 4 and 5. And meeting together is important because you might, you might miss out on something. Imagine missing—missing missing this worship service. You never know what might happen. And when we meet together for worship, we're not just looking at the stage, but we are ministering to one another, right. like we are—we are finding gospel encouragement and receiving gospel encouragement and giving gospel encouragement. We are reminding our brothers and sisters that our greatest problem has already been solved, yes. that death has been defeated. We are doing Romans eight thirty one and following with our brothers and sisters. If God be for us, plural, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Right? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is interceding for us, who's at the right hand of the Father. We're reminding each other when we assemble together of these great gospel truths. The first day of the week is is put there as the day of worship because the gospel is central in our worship assemblies. We get to remind ourselves of great glorious truths that we've been singing even today, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sins. Jesus has removed our fear. We have a singing faith, a celebratory faith, because we have the gospel. Works righteousness doesn't fuel praise. If you think you're trying to earn acceptance, it won't lead to praise. Grace fuels praise. Grace fuels praise. And when you realize that your greatest problem has been removed, it gives you unspeakable peace and a great… Desire to praise God, as illustrated by the way, in the previous chapters in Acts, Acts 12 and Acts 16. In Acts 12, Peter is in chains, but he's sleeping. They have to send an angel to wake him up. In Acts 16, Paul is in chains and he's singing. The gospel will let you sleep, and the gospel will let you sing, even though people may condemn you. Our hearts are free. We have a singing faith, and so we gather together with brothers and sisters to remind each other of these kinds of truths. That was a priority. These hadn't been Christians, these people had not been Christians very long, and already what, what had been built into them was the necessity of gathering together to remember the Lord's resurrection. And so we have to really press this on our people, don't we, in a, in a world that seems to sort of take a, take it or leave it attitude toward uh, weekly gatherings. It's simply not a priority for many professing Christians. Church is a good thing to do if you don't have anything else going on. Many people even think you can do it better at the lake or even today on your phone. But you can't do Hebrews ten twenty-four to 25 at the lake. You can't encourage your brothers and sisters without being there. It's an absolute priority that we, 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 we make this part of the every week rhythm of our life and remind our people it is dangerous for you not to assemble with other brothers and sisters. It should serve as a warning to you. What we see first in Acts 20 is that the people gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Secondly, we see in verses 7 to 12 that they gather to hear the Lord's word. They gathered to hear the apostle Paul teach. Verse 7 says that Paul spoke to them and then in verse 11, it says Paul conversed with them. The first part, if we just do a word study, seemed to have more… it seems to imply more of a dialogue that Paul was having, uh, less of a formal sermon. Uh, But the word conversed is homileo, where we get homiletics from, which probably was more of a monologue. Uh, It seems to be quite free and spontaneous and open, not like a a formal sermon like we have. Um, But we need to remember that this is the Apostle Paul. This was a very unique experience. Uh, The people show us how much they value the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And what we have today, Acts 2.42, is the Apostle's teaching, which we are to be devoted to, right? As Lig said last night, he quoting, 1 Timothy 4, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. The word should be central in our worship. Central in our worship. You see, we, we show our people what we believe about the Bible, not merely by what we say about the Bible, but how we use the Bible. There's a professor in, in UNC Chapel Hill, Bart Ehrman, who does this little exercise every year to incoming students. Uh, many of them grew up in some kind of uh, Christian uh, background. And, large class of about 300. Ehrman is an agnostic who teaches the New Testament, doesn't believe that the New Testament uh, is, is God's Word, doesn't believe in the resurrection, and seems to be on quite a crusade to convince students that they should rethink their faith. And so he begins with this exercise every semester. How many of you believe that the Bible is God's Word? And he says the majority of the class raise their hands. He asks a second question. How many of you have read, and he'll pick a popular book, like, um, the Hunger Games, and every hand goes up in the air. And then he asks a third question. How many of you have read through the whole Bible? And virtually no student raises their hand. And Ehrman points out the, the obvious problem. He will say something to the effect of, look, I could understand why you would want to read Suzanne Collins. She's a great writer. But if you really believed God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to read it? Yeah. And I would add to it, wouldn't you want to preach it? Do you think you have something better than His Word? You see, we need millions of faithful, people-loving expositors who will make much of Jesus. We, we, We need to remember that God builds His church by His Word. You can build a crowd on personality, but you can't build a church. You build a church on His Word. For years I've taught preaching and sometimes people have asked me, like, what do you teach those guys? And I'm like, well, I tell them to use the Bible and talk about Jesus. I'm like, really? They pay you for that? They're like, is it… do they need you to say that? I'm like, have you… have you visited any churches lately? Uh, yeah, yeah, we need to be telling them that. Because <laughs> we… we have a, a whole culture that does not prize Scripture. They prize experience or tradition or mysticism. They don't have a view of the sufficiency of the Word. And so one of the ways we're going to cultivate that is by our own practice, by convincing the people. And what I love about the people in, in Troas here is not is their interest. Like They just seem to, to stay there. They remind me of Nehemiah 8 as we are told that Ezra brought the book because the people told him to bring the book. Ezra wasn't having to convince people to come to his Bible study. They were telling the preacher, come bring the book to us. They were like those basketball players when they get hot and start making a lot of threes, they do that little you know little thing like, feed me, feed me. That that's what they were like in Nehemiah 8. That's what they are like here in in Acts 20. Paul, we don't want you to leave. We're hungry. Feed us. They're listening humbly, intently, personally. They're listening communally, they're listening gratefully. Well, there's a whole lot we could say about that subject, but I must get to my assignment number three. The people here gather to enjoy the Lord's Supper. Now meals are very important. We see the, the breaking of bread mentioned in verse seven, and then the meal in verse 11. Meals are powerful, right? If I were to ask you, what's your favorite meal of all time, it would be a hard one, wouldn't it? I asked my kids that question, I have five kids, all teenagers, you know how to pray for me. Um, <laughs> Hey, kids, what's your favorite meal? And normally they, it includes a pinata, something around birthday. I ask my wife, what's your, what's your favorite meal of all time? And she mentioned several wonderful date nights we had, being in Hawaii, for example, watching the sun go, go down, eating shrimp. I uh, remember our, the night I proposed to my wife. We had a, a glorious dinner. I proposed to my wife at Arlington Cemetery. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> and... There, there I pledged to, to, uh, to, to lay down my life for my bride. I mean, it was actually a really good speech, guys. Um, and uh, and sh- she agreed to marry me. And, and her dad made this huge feast. And uh, when we got home, he welcomed me, you know, to the family and asked me to say grace. And, and I'll just never forget that meal. If I were to ask you, what's your favorite meal? It probably would not include, you know, it's when I was going through the Taco Bell drive-through at 2 a.m. Um, it was a really glorious night. Or... when when I was this single college student all alone uh, eating ramen noodles. uh, Most most of you would say something that included family and friends and good food and festivity. There are nights God gives us in this life that, that we don't want to end, like here in Troas. They don't want the night to end. This table is is saying something to us, you see. Why is it that when someone dies that you love, one of the places that you miss them the most is at the table? You you feel their absence. Isaiah 25 gives us this glorious vision, doesn't he, when he says in verse 6, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. The Lord will make a feast, a feast of well-aged wine, of of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the lord will wipe away tears from all our faces isaiah isaiah says this is where history is moving the lord making a meal wiping tears off of our faces swallowing up death forever and our experience in the lord's supper is a look back on Christ's work of redemption at the cross, and it is a look forward, isn't it, to this glorious day that Isaiah and the others have promised us. You could really tell the whole story of the Bible with food. You know, in the, in the garden, Adam and Eve are there, and God is providing for them, telling them what to eat and what not to eat. After they sin, He clothes them, makes a great gospel promise to them. The people are enslaved in Egypt, and God uh, delivers them, and he, they are to remember His redemption through a meal. They are to taste the bitterness that they had in Egypt. They are to remember the lamb that was slain to give them shelter and protection. And then God is moving them through the wilderness, and it is God, the host, who is providing for them. He is providing bread from heaven and water from a rock sandals that never wear out for 40 years and where is god taking this people he's taking them to a land that is flowing with milk and honey where he says you know the 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 vegetables are huge like basketballs he's taking them to a land he's going to feed them and when jesus christ comes on the scene what is he doing regularly but eating with people the son of man luke says in 7 came eating and drinking He's dining with people. The, the book of Luke bears this out big time. Uh, one writer even has a book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. As, as Jesus is either at a meal, he's coming from a meal, or he's going to a meal in Luke's Gospel. He is the friend of sinners. He's given a title as a drunkard and glutton, though he wasn't, because he was always hanging with people, eating with people. That's our Savior. He goes home with Zacchaeus, he's with Levi the tax collector. Then we see Him giving the, the command to, to remember His death through a meal. And all of that picturing our way to glory. You see meals, meals are powerful and meals have a way of taking us home. Every time I eat meatloaf, I think of my mother, because every time I go home, she, she makes it for me. When I was in, overseas, we were adopting our children. We have, we have five adopted children, we have four from Ukraine we had to stay in Ukraine for 40 days, and that meant eating Ukrainian food for 40 days. And whenever we would drive through this little town of Poltava, I could see the McDonald's arches. And I don't ordinarily like McDonald's, but I really like McDonald's in in Ukraine. I would see those arches, and it was like the outstretched arms of Jesus Himself. (laughs) Saying, come to me, all you who are weary, and I, I will give you a quarter pounder. That that little McDonald's gave me a taste of home, you see. And the Lord's Supper takes us home like no other meal takes us home. It reminds us that our home is not here. And it promises that one day we will be at home. We will have a meal experience then that will be unlike any meal experience we've ever had. You see, my friends, you and I are made for the table. We are made for companionship. We are made for fellowship. We are made for hospitality. We are made to dwell with God in a place with no sin and no tears. And in this life, we face trouble. But soon, we will be home and we will dine with our King. We will then feel more at home than we've ever felt in this world. The Lord's Supper helps us to taste this hope and to see this hope. And what does Luke say about the table? Luke mentions... That the Lord's Supper, it seems again, was a common event in the life of the church gathered. He uses the same expression that you find in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And again, it was probably shared in the context of a meal. John Stott says this, word and sacrament were combined in the ministry given to the church in Troas and the universal church has followed suit ever since. So let's think about three things as I I finish up my time here and try to apply this to us. The privilege of the table, the pattern of the table, and the power of the table. So the privilege, first of all, it is a privilege for us to take the table. It had to, to be quite overwhelming for the church in Troas to take the table with Paul. It had to have been a great encouragement to Paul to have taken the table with these new believers. Some of you know missionary friends who are around the world laboring to get the gospel to unreached people groups. We have people in our own church that are, that are in places where there are no known Christians and there's never been a church among that people group. And I know they would say they long for the day in which they could serve communion for the first time to new believers. John G. Patton, the famous missionary, described that experience. Patton was a, a well-known pastor, and he wanted to go to the New Hebrides Islands, a story that has been popularized by… by many as uh, the church didn't want Patton to go. They were afraid he would be cannibalized, uh, which was not uh, a myth. Two missionaries had been cannibalized. Patton was convinced he should go to these islands and preach to these… these cannibalistic people. And Patton describes the following when he gave the communion for the first time to these new believers. He says, for years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus Himself." Handing communion to former cannibals, (laughs) to to serve the table, to take part in the table, that my friends is a privilege. You may not be a cannibal, but you were dead in your sin and totally unworthy to take the emblems and seals of our Redeemer's love. Let's never get over the wonder of the gospel. That's one of the purposes of communion, to remind us of who we were, of what Jesus has done. Bonhoeffer says, it is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's Word and sacrament. It's a gift. It's a privilege. Secondly, the pattern. What is the pattern of this early church? How often should we take the Lord's Supper? Well, that's a really good question. (laughs) It depends on who you ask. The question I want to pose to you this morning is this. How often did the early church take the supper? Because you're going to need to work this out. I always love when Alistair Begg doesn't really want to touch a subject. And he says, you guys are sensible people. You work it out. That's kind of what I want to say to you today. I'm going to tell you what we do, but you're, going to, you're sensible people. You're going to need to work this out, okay? It, it seems to, clear to me that, that the early church took the table weekly. After the church moved out of Jerusalem, where you see them meeting day by day, the church got more stabilized and it began meeting weekly, as you see here, uh, that the supper became a weekly experience. Uh, again, to quote Stott, the disciples met on the Lord's Day for the Lord's Supper. At least verse 7 sounds like a description of the normal, regular practice of the church in Troas. Uh, Let me quote a couple Baptists. Ray Van Nest says this of Acts 20, verse 7, The breaking of bread is the term used especially in Acts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and this passage is of particular interest, providing the first allusion to the Christian custom of meeting on the first day of the week for that purpose. The passage need not mean the Lord's Supper was the only purpose for their gathering, But it certainly was a prominent purpose. The centrality of communion to the weekly gathering is stated casually, without explanation or defense, suggesting this practice was common among those Luke expected to read this account. These early Christians met weekly to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And to quote a great prof from this seminary, James Hamilton, He writes, I would suggest that Acts 27 with 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 indicates that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was central to the early Christian gatherings. He writes, look at it again, on the first day of the week when we gathered to break bread. They gathered to break bread, and the gathering happened on the first day of the week. The churches Paul planted and established met on the first day of the week to celebrate the death and resurrection of jesus looking for his return by partaking in the lord's supper now what i would just say is there are two real questions that i have for you one is this true first of all like is this the pattern and then the second question is what will you do with it um, and again i'm going to let you work that out we we don't have an explicit commandment to take the table weekly. This is a pattern that I'm 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 talking about here, not an explicit commandment. We take the table weekly at IDC, and my experience, and uh, the testimony of others, is that regular communion is actually more meaningful, not less meaningful, than periodic observances. It's very counterintuitive, but I do believe that to be the case. Uh, Spurgeon. Uh, Put it like this my witness is and I think I speak the mind of many of God's people now present that coming as some do Some of us do weekly to the Lord's table. So he was also an advocate We do not find the breaking of bread to have lost its significance. It is always fresh to us They who once knew the sweetness of each Lord's day celebrating the Lord's Supper will not be content I am sure to put it off to less frequent seasons Now if you conclude that you should not take the table weekly, then I just want to say you need a better reason than it will get old. We could say that about every element of worship, couldn't we? (laughs) It's amazing what we do every week and never say, well, that's going to get old. Like take the offering up. It's going to get really old, guys. I just want to say. It's only 52 times a year. Is that too frequent? I mean, does hearing your wife say, I love you, get old? You see, that's a heart problem. That's not a frequency problem. It's the cold heart that fails to appreciate the death of the Savior. John Owen put it well when he said, every act of sin is a result of growing weary of God. It's a result of growing weary of God. Let's not also add other, I find, uh, unacceptable excuses. It's a logistical problem. Many just say it's not their tradition. Well, wherever you land on frequency, what we cannot do is give people the impression that the Lord's Supper is not very important. And that is being communicated far too much, I'm afraid. So why should we value it? One, because Jesus told us to. This is what he gave us. And this is a New Testament uh, practice. But secondly, related to our theme this morning, to proclaim the gospel to the eye. We should value it because it's a powerful proclamation of the gospel, isn't it? Sometimes people ask me, like, Tony, why do you guys take the table every week at your church? And I always say, well, if the sermon stinks, you'll at least take the table. You'll, You'll at least hear the gospel clearly, succinctly, and powerfully it's a great safeguard if you're not a great preacher I would show up just to take the table and see that's being communicated the torn flesh and and poured out blood of Jesus thirdly I would say we value because it's one of the marks of a true church like what makes a church a church it's not a budget it's not a building it's it's not a website Uh, the widely held historic position has been that a true church is where the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. And, and the latter there often, you know, involved in that is the practice of church discipline. Calvin put it well, wherever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church of God exists. It doesn't matter if you gather under a church, in, uh, under a tree in Nigeria or in an apartment in Kiev, or in a warehouse in Raleigh, is the gospel preached? Are the sacraments being administered, is is church discipline being carried out? But I also want to suggest that we we value it because it really does provide a fitting way for people to respond to the preaching of the Word. Communion leads to self-examination, it leads to humble repentance, it offers hope to people. It, it allows us also to, to present the gospel to the unbeliever in a particularly vivid way. We often quote Keller who, who says if… Uh, as we talk to unbelievers about letting the, the elements pass, if you can't take the bread and cup, take Christ instead. What we want to offer you is the one to whom the elements point and, and we give them place to meet us right after the service. We, we want to talk to you about becoming a Christian. We want you to take the table with us, but you can't because you're not a Christian. And We do this to build community. That's the whole thing in in 1 Corinthians 11, right? The haves and the have-nots were not getting along. The haves were treating the have-nots inappropriately. The wealthy Christians were bringing their class distinctions with them to corporate worship, and Paul rebukes them. He essentially says, we're family. There are no real distinctions. Your class doesn't ultimately matter. Your race doesn't ultimately matter. What ultimately matters is His blood. That's reconciled us to God and to one another. So there's the privilege. There's the pattern. Finally, the power. The Lord's Supper is powerful, first of all, in its reception. Now, I don't believe that we take these elements and they turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus, but at the same time, we don't want to minimize the the power of this experience of taking the table. Many Christians simply hear, uh, grow up hearing what the Lord's Supper is not. And so what happens when all you're ever saying is this is what's not happening is people tend to have a low view of it. What they really hear is nothing really special is happening here. But we should experience profound delight, deep joy, deep repentance. We should praise Him. This is what Jesus has done on our behalf. Packer says, at the holy table, above all, let there be praise. Let there be praise. You see, the Lord's Supper, many people think, is not a funeral service for Jesus. (laughs) It's not a funeral where we're to feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus is doing just fine. No, no, we are remembering. We are delighting. It's powerful in its reception. It's powerful in its proclamation. When we started our church, my my Ethiopian son Joshua was only six years old, and every every Sunday back as we would drive back home, you try to get a little download from your kids, like what did you take away from the sermon? Do you even remember what verse I was on in the sermon? And, And Joshua could not really articulate well what was being said by me, but he always mentioned the Lord's Supper. He was seeing the gospel, having a profound impact on him. It's powerful in its proclamation. And finally, it's powerful in its unification. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture of our unity in Christ Jesus, of our future hope that we will be together with believers from every tribe and tongue. Consider this this final illustration from Ben Witherington, who has a book called Making a Meal of It, regarding our unity at the table. He says, at the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after the Appomattox and the surrender, a worship service was held in the historic Episcopal Church there. It was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years with their masters and their families sitting downstairs. The practice in this church had been to have two calls for the Lord's Supper, one first for the white downstairs downstairs and then one for the slaves upstairs. But on this given Sunday, at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began down the central aisle right after the call. Naturally enough, there was surprise and shock downstairs, but what was even more of a shock was when an elderly, white, bearded gentleman got up, hooked his arm in the arm of the former slave. And they went forward and took communion together. That man was Robert E. Lee. He writes, there was forgiveness and healing and reunion at the table that day, and thereafter there was no more segregated communion. This indeed is one of the functions of communion, the receiving and sharing of forgiveness. Jesus sacrificed himself so that our sins might be forgiven and so that we might be forgiving as well. It's a powerful picture, isn't it, of grace, of unity, of togetherness at the table. And this togetherness is a powerful sign of what's to come. You see, the Lord's Supper is a sign of the messianic reign, isn't it? A foretaste of the future. For in the table we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And soon, my friends, we will feast with the King, along with all the redeemed. What do we learn from Acts 20? We learn that it is a great privilege to gather weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, to gather to hear the Lord's Word, and to gather to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And soon we will be part of this great gathering to come, to which we say together, Maranatha, Maranatha. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the great privilege we have in studying it, looking at it. We want to be good students, good disciples of yours. We pray that you would lead us into paths of truth. You pray that you would help us to lead our congregation as we point them to Jesus in his word. And in the table we thank you for these beautiful pictures we have in the Lord's Supper and in baptism that remind us beautifully of the power of the gospel and may we indeed never get over the wonder of it Lord Jesus we bless you we honor you we look forward until we do get to take that feast that meal with you in the future and until that day I pray you would keep us faithful keep our eyes on you For when we see you on that final day, we will not regret having been faithful. Be pleased now as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.